So the reading this morning is from Luke chapter 1, beginning at verse 26. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you are highly favored. The Lord is with you. But Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? The angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come on you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age, and she, who is said to be unable to conceive, is in her sixth month. For no word from God will ever fail. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word to me be fulfilled. Then the angel left her. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Ken. Well, as we mentioned, we are in the beginning of Advent. Today is the very first Sunday of Advent. And for those of you who maybe didn't grow up liturgical or like thinking of the church in church calendar or liturgical terms, Advent is simply the way of describing Jesus's arrival, the advent, the arrival, the coming of Jesus. And as we enter into the Advent season, what we are celebrating is Jesus's arrival into the world. This season that starts today and leads up to Christmas Eve marks this remembrance, celebrating and hoping in the birth of Jesus. And one of the biblical writer's favorite ways to talk about the arrival of Jesus is to do so in the language of gift. Writers of Scripture love to talk about Jesus' arrival as a gift. One of my favorite passages is 2 Corinthians 9.15, where Paul simply says, Thanks God for his gift. That is beyond what words can describe. Advent celebrates the gift of God to the world. That God who loves us, John 3.16, so loved us that he gave his one and only son. Advent celebrates that gift that God so loved he gave. And we've been talking about this reality that God gives over the last couple of Weeks And last week we talked about how God gives as an expression of God's agape love. Agape is the Greek phrase for love that describes the highest kind of love. And it is an honoring, a dignifying, a respecting kind of love. And out of this agape love, this deep well of love, God gives. And it's a beautiful story. We love to tell this story. We love to do the nativity scene. We love to gather for Christmas songs. The whole thing, very beautiful. But it is only one side of the gift-giving story. There's two sides to any story about a gift. There is 
one side, which is the story of the gift being given, that God has given us a gift, that God has made himself flesh and entered into the world. That's one side of the story. But on the other side of the story is how that gift is received. Right? In any gift-giving story, there's the story of the giver, and there is also the story of the recipient. No matter how good a gift is, you have to talk about how is it received? How do the people who receive the gift respond to the gift? It's what makes giving a gift so vulnerable. Even something really simple, like if I buy you a cup of coffee, there's a lot of things that might go wrong in that exchange. You might have already had 11 cups of coffee and you're so buzzed on caffeine, you're like, I don't want any more of your gifts. (laughs) Right? Or if you have a more like sizable gift. I think what is the most sizable gift I've ever given is probably when I proposed to my wife. That's a deeply vulnerable experience if you've ever proposed or been proposed to because a lot of things can happen. Like you believe you know what's going to happen. She could still say no. And if she did say no, then we would quite literally have been trapped in a glass orb 500 feet in the air for 50 minutes together just waiting around. Right, there is the story of the gift, the story of the giver, the intentions, the hopes, the implications, all the things that I might want to happen as I give a gift. But the other side of that story is that someone has to receive the gift. Someone has to respond to the gift. Someone has to do something with the gift that is given. In Advent, tells both stories. Which is something that's very beautiful about this season. On the one hand, it tells the story about God giving himself to the world. But throughout the narratives of Advent, those stories come to real people whose lives will necessarily be transformed by the gift that they are going to receive. And throughout the Advent story, you see real people who receive this gift have to decide what to do with the gift that is given. And sometimes their response is beautiful, full of trust and hope and expectation. And other times, that response is defined by fear. Even violence as they try to refuse the gift and try to stop the gift from being given into the world. And that, again, is the vulnerability of giving a gift. You submit yourself in some ways in mutuality to the other to let them do with the gift something. In an Advent, we get to see both stories. And as we hear those stories throughout this season, it invites us to ask a similar kind of question as the recipients of the gifts throughout the story are invited to ask. What do we do with the gift of Advent? We believe that it is good news. We believe that it is big news. That's probably why you're in the room today, is that you believe at some level the Jesus story is good news, or you were just like bribed with a Pop-Tart. But either way, you believe something good is happening. And the question is, what do you do with the news? How do you respond to it? How do you receive the gift of Advent? It's good news, but it is wildly disruptive news. It's wildly life-changing news, especially as we will see today. So how do we respond? 
Now, the first story that we're looking at from Ken's reading this morning is the story that is referred to as the Annunciation. It's the announcement of Jesus' birth to his mother, Mary. The text says that a messenger arrives to Mary and says, Rejoice! Favored one, the Lord is with you. Mary was confused by these words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. The messenger said, Don't be afraid, Mary. God is honoring you. I think this is a funny moment. She doesn't say she's afraid. She says she's confused. She's like, I'm not afraid. I just don't know what you're doing. This passage, though, is covered in the language of gift. The angel says, rejoice, favored one. That word favored, we talked about this last week, is charis, which is the Greek word for gift. Rejoice, one who is about to receive a gift. And then again in verse 30, the messenger said, don't be afraid, Mary. God is charis, gifting you with something. Something is about to be gifted. This is a special kind of full of gift scenario. Rejoice, gifted one. God is about to give you a gift. What is the gift? Well, the messenger goes on, verse 31 through 33. Look, you will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will name him Jesus. And he will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of David his father. He will rule over Jacob's house forever, and there will be no end to his kingdom. So rejoice, you're about to receive a gift. What is the gift? Bombshell. You're about to be pregnant. And not only are you going to be pregnant, but you're going to be pregnant with Superman. (laughs) This is the one. Like, this is the guy. Like, if you've been reading the Old Testament, this is the person that the Israelites have been hoping for, longing for, expecting to come. They've been curating for hundreds of years promises of a Messiah, a Savior, a chosen one who's going to rescue the people, restore the throne of Israel, overwhelm Rome, return justice and peace to the world, right? It's all the hopes that Israel has are now coming to Mary. Like, this is the thing that you're about to carry. I like cannot imagine how much of a doozy that would be to hear. We know that Mary's young. She's a kid, 16, 17. She's not married. She's about to be married. And all of a sudden, the news that she receives is this. Which is why I really love how Mary responds to the messenger. She says, um, how? Then Mary said to the angel, how will this happen? I've had sexual relations with a man. I'm a virgin. I keep imagining this scene. This is like really demonstrates how much a product of my age I am. But I keep imagining the scene like that moment in Aladdin when Robin Williams' genie is like singing and you just see like Aladdin being like thrown around and forgotten. He's like trying to like sneak away from this like ultra figure. I feel like that's kind of what's happening. The angel is like consumed in this wondrous speech and then Mary like taps him on the shoulder and is like, yeah, but um, I don't have the parts that you're looking for. The other thing that is so fascinating about Mary's response is that she asks how, but I think what is very interesting about her response is what she does not ask how about. Mary does not ask the questions that I think I would be prone to ask 
which is, how will this son become king? I just think that's fascinating. Maybe it's because I've heard the incarnation advent story so many times that the question I'm now interested in is, how does this boy, how does this person become king of the universe? Like, how does he restore the throne of David? How does he bring justice to the world? Like, those are the questions that I would find myself or find myself today wrestling with. But instead of that, Mary asks, how will I participate in this story? How do I fulfill the part that you're asking me to fulfill? How do I do this thing? In this moment, Mary questions her own role in the entire event. And I think she expresses a very human kind of self-doubt that any big gift evokes in us. In a much smaller sense, when any big opportunity or gift presents itself, it can trigger in us, I think most of us in this room will know this, it can trigger in us self-doubt or anxiety. Maybe the easiest way to think about it is if you ever received a promotion, how quickly does like the imposter syndrome begin to work its way into our hearts? You're like, I can't do this job. You get like a really amazing compliment. How fast do you want to like temper the thing that someone said to you? (laughs) You don't know me that well. somebody becomes pregnant for the first time, all the questions are like, how do I be a parent? How do I love this thing? How do I care for this thing? How do I keep it alive? There's something about Mary's response that feels so deeply human because this gift in her evokes doubt. There's different kinds of doubt that we can experience when a gift is given, when we're about to receive something like this. For Mary, it feels like the doubt that she's experiencing is the question, how can I do this? She surveys her life, and she looks at the parts that she has, the resources that are available to her, and she's like, "Mm, I don't think I can fulfill this mission. But in a less significant way, I think we have that same question evoked in us when we talk about being followers of Jesus. And that's because any good gift calls us into something. It invites us into something. It challenges us. It beckons us into something. The gift of Jesus calls us into a life of radical love. But how can you survey a life of a life of radical love and not be like, how do I? How do I love my neighbor this way? How do I love my enemies when I can barely love myself? How do I follow Jesus? How do I pray? How do I have faith? How do I participate in the work that God is doing? How do I go into the unknown spaces the Spirit is leading? How do I do this? It's a gift evokes a sense of self-doubt and anxiety. How can I do this? I feel that question a lot. How do we do this? I think another kind of self-doubt that can trigger in us is one that is about measuring the risk. It's a question of, is it worth the risk? Good gifts most often cost something of the receiver, not just the giver. Right? If Tori says yes to me when I propose, costs her something. She has to be married to me. 
I remember once reading an article about people who receive new homes on like home makeover shows, that pretty often they lose them because the expenses of a new home that's been fully remodeled is actually really high. And it's a beautiful gift. It's a good gift. Not trying to like reduce the gift to something, but all of a sudden the electricity bill is much higher, the property taxes are much higher, and normally it comes to people who are in need, and you're like, oh, I wasn't expecting the cost of this gift. Right? Good gifts, can, they can bring some cost to them. They can change our lives. They can pull us into something new. Jesus says, before you become my follower, you should analyze the cost. Like if you're going to build a tower, you should make sure you have the money to build it. If you're going to go to war, you should make sure you can win it. There's a cost involved. And for Mary, there is a lot of cost on the line. She's a young woman living in the ancient Near East. Her pregnancy could mean that she doesn't get married. And if she doesn't get married, that could mean she has no way of providing for herself. It's kind of how the ancient Near East works. So there's a lot to analyze if it's worth the risk. So we ask ourselves this question, is it worth it? Is it worth stepping into this gift? Is it worth stepping into the vulnerability of this gift? I think for many of us, this question is even harder to wrestle with because in our past, at some moment or some time, we tried to step into a gift and got hurt. There's a field of psychology called attachment theory, which I think has actually been gaining a lot of uh, popularity recently. But there is a, the, the kind of the premise is that you can sort of tell you can kind of figure out how secure a person's relationships are going to be depending upon how secure they were in the past or how unstable they were in the past. And there is one kind of attachment that tends to reject or rebuff relationships, to act like it doesn't need it. And the theory suggests in some ways that often this comes because when someone was trying to be relationally connected, they were met with avoidance or detachment or disconnection. And so then the way that we cope with that as we grow up is to be avoidant, to be distant, to be disconnected. I risked before, I tried to move towards someone before, and I was met with absence. And so now I will avoid risk so that I don't have to be met with absence again. I feel like that question comes to us when we talk about a big gift. Is it worth stepping in? Because I did before. I thought it was a gift once before, and when I did, I was met with absence. And so will it be worth it again? Maybe I should just avoid it. Maybe I should just say it's not worth it. It's not worth any of the cost because it wasn't before. And I think at the bottom of these ones is maybe an even deeper or more fundamental question, which is, will I be okay So if I take the risk and if I receive the gift, the gift of Jesus, a gift that I believe is good, that I believe is beautiful, that I believe is right, will I be okay at the end of the day? Will I be safe? Will I be loved? Will I be known? Will I be seen? We can endure a lot as humans if our sense of self stays secure. Life can change, it can be hectic, it can be chaotic. We can endure many storms on the outside of us if the very center of us still feels controlled, centered, known, safe. 
And so the deepest question that often starts to get evoked when a gift is given or a risk is on the table is that question at the very heart of us. Will we be okay if we take the step, if we receive the gift, if we step out in the risk? Will I be safe? That self-doubt at that bottom of that question is a doubt of, it's a fear of exposure. If I step into that place, what will be seen? Will I be exposed and made vulnerable? These are all questions or doubts that I think can get triggered in us when a gift is about to be received. And when Mary raises her own doubt, her question of how, the messenger has a very interesting response to her. He says three things. The first thing the messenger says is this. The angel replied, The Holy Spirit will come over you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. I often forget this about the Advent story, that the primary agent of the Advent story is the Holy Spirit. The thing that makes the birth possible is the work of the Holy Spirit. And this moment is similar, in fact, to another moment that comes 33-ish years later when Jesus is with his disciples. And he's with his disciples. He's about to ascend. So this is the moment he's about to descend, and then he's about to ascend. And he has a very similar comment that he makes to the disciples. He says this to the disciples in Luke 24. Look, I'm sending to you what my father promised. But you are to stay until you have been clothed or furnished or covered with power. These moments are interesting in that they are like chapter ends to the story in this moment. And they both contain two ideas that I think are similar. The first is that God will give Mary and the disciples power to accomplish something to do something that feels totally impossible. For Mary, it is the birth. For the disciples, it's to be witnesses to the end of the earth. In both moments, it's power to participate in work that feels beyond them, which is a marvelous promise. Because like, I'm going to give you something in order to help you participate. I'm going to give you something in order to help you receive this gifts. We looked at this scripture a few weeks ago, but in Ephesians, Paul prays that you would have the power of the Spirit to know how much you are loved. It's like this gift is so beyond words, it's so beyond measure that you need help, you need power outside of yourself to even receive how good it is. And so he says, I'm going to help you. I'm going to give you the power to receive. But there's a second feature to this that I think is really beautiful. The text in Luke 1 says that Mary will be shadowed or shaded. And in Luke 24, the language is that the disciples will be clothed or furnished or covered. In both texts, the language speaks to being covered. Which I think is so interesting in that we just talked about self-doubt tends to trigger when we are most afraid of being exposed. 
when we are most afraid of something really deep, something really vulnerable, something true of us being exposed to the world, and the promise that Mary receives and the disciples receive later is that you will receive shade and clothing. You will be protected from harmful exposure. What a promise. The promise is not that you will not enter into places that are wild or desolate or that expose you to the sun. The promise is that as you enter into those places, you go covered, concealed, hidden away, protected from things that would harm that truest, deepest sense of self. The Apostle Paul uses sort of similar language in Romans 8, verse 22. He says, using actually birth as a metaphor still, he says this, we know that the whole creation is groaning together and suffering labor pains. Like the world is experiencing exposure, difficulty. But it's not only creation. We ourselves who have the Spirit as a first hope, we also groan, feel the pains of a gift that's maybe too big to hold, that calls us into something that's difficult. Paul says, for the good news is the Spirit comes to help us. The promise in this moment is that the Spirit would not only empower us to perform a work that is beyond us, but would aid us and guide us and cover us and conceal us as we go. The last couple of weeks we've been talking about faith being like a mountain. And, I, and the metaphor that comes to my mind now is the Spirit is the guide who leads us into the mountain. That you do not go alone. That you do not go unaided or unprotected, but you go with the power of the Spirit. This is the first promise that Mary receives. But then the messenger looks and says this in verse 36. He says to Mary, look at Elizabeth. The story came just a few chapters before, or just one couple of verses before, where uh, Elizabeth, who's a relative of Mary, becomes pregnant with John the Baptist. And the messenger says, look, even in her old age, your relative Elizabeth has conceived a son. This woman was labeled unable to conceive. She's now six months pregnant. The messenger says, look to Elizabeth, who despite her age, is pregnant. God, God tends to do this, actually, throughout this story. If you read your Bible, God likes to reference things that God has done before. It's kind of like a pattern. So if you read the Old Testament, God has this habit of coming to somebody and saying, I'm the God of your ancestors. I'm the God of Abraham, of Isaac, of Jacob, post-Israel. He's like, I'm the one that delivered you from Egypt and led you into the promised land. God will often retell God's own story of rescue. And it is not so God can, like, flex on Mary. It is instead a reminder that God is and always has been trustworthy and faithful. Self-doubt tends to emerge from places of instability and untrustworthiness. We, once upon, risked in vulnerability, and what we were met with, not trustworthiness. We were met with absence. We were met with nothing. We were met with hostility. Even in the best-case scenarios, we can often meet one another in ill ways, and that can scar us, that can lead us afraid to 
risk, self-doubt comes, it emerges, it gets triggered when we have been met with absence. But in reminding Mary of promises kept, even this one so close to her, God is showing stability and trustworthiness. It's the establishment of a trustworthy center. I was listening to a psychologist recently uh, who was talking about attachment theory, and they were like, if you want to establish secure relationships with your kids, you just need to be stable about 50% of the time. Which I was like, that's amazing. Everybody I've told that to, every parent I've told that to has been like, woo, what a relief. Right, kids need, and that's true of us today, we need sources of stability. Sources of trustworthiness that enable us to risk, that enable us to venture in. And when we receive those things, when we have those places that are stable and safe, what it tends to lead to is a willingness to take more risk, to explore, to try, to enter into unknown spaces. So in this moment, what God is showing Mary is that he is trustworthy. He's a source secure enough to risk out of, to receive a gift out of. In a word, both of these promises are promises of God's presence to be with Mary. You could say it's the promise of Advent, that God is with us, Emmanuel. And it is out of presence, out of the stable center of trustworthiness, that sense of security and consistency that is God, that the messenger says, therefore, nothing is impossible for God. Because God is this source of security, the agape love at the very center of your life, you do not have to carry this weight alone. Instead, you go with. You can receive the gift. You can risk in trust, knowing that your center, your source is secure. And here is the beauty of Mary's story. What began maybe with a bit of doubt in verse 38, or in the beginning ends in verse 38 with this statement. Then Mary said, I am the Lord's servant. Let it be with me just as you have said. Mary trusts. Not her own ability, but in God's promise to her. When I first read this, this like statement, I am the Lord's servant, let it be, it almost sounded like resignation to me. Maybe that's just like a tone that I read into it. But if you just go a few verses below this, you get this marvelous song that Mary sings. And I think it's helpful to hear just to get the tone of what Mary is saying when she says, I am the Lord's servant, let it be. Just a few verses later, she says this, God has looked with gift on the low status of his servant. Look, from now on, everyone will consider me highly gifted because the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. He has shown mercy to everyone. 
out of the stability, consistency, faithfulness, merciful center of God, she sings and risks and receives the gift that God has for her. Monsieur, this is the story of Advent. A story that is both about a gift that is coming, that has come, the story of Jesus, but it is also a story of reception and response. And it invites every single one of us in here, yes, to celebrate the gift, to remember the gift, to to sing the songs in declaration and praise of the gift, but also to ask, how do we respond to this gift? It's good news, but it is disruptive. And it can trigger so many of those places in us of self-doubt, of insecurity, and even of anxiety. So how do we respond to the gift of Advent this year, Missio? The same promise that is made to Mary are also made to us. That God will be with us. That God has always been with us. So, Missio, if that's true, if the promises that God makes to Mary are true, that he can be a secure and stable, faithful center, how do you respond to the gift? What if? Let's pray. Jesus, today as we enter the season, as we tell the story of Advent, and as we center ourselves on you, your gift, your presence to the world, would we receive you and respond to you? Would we know what it means to be loved so deeply that you would give yourself to us? And would the power that you give us, the presence and commitment and stability that you give us, allow us to receive that gift with open arms and open hearts, knowing that in you we are secure. It doesn't mean that the world won't be wild. It doesn't mean that things won't be disruptive. It doesn't mean that life won't change dramatically. All of that is on the table. But God, would you help us know that in you, we, are secure.